Thanks, Steve. I want to leave your Bibles open, and you've got an outline there that you can take some notes in if you'd find that helpful. And why don't we pray and ask God to help us to think through and understand uh, what He's said to us in His Word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come together today from all sorts of weeks with all sorts of things going on. And we recognize that as we open your word, that we hear you speak to us the way you've acted throughout history to show us who you are and what your plans are and how we might be part of them. So this morning, we ask you would give us a great sense of awe that you catch us up into your plans and that you have sent your son to be the king who we can trust. Amen. Do you ever find yourself in life longing for rest? You know that feeling when you've been working hard or you've been doing lots and you're just tired. You're kind of like, oh, I just, I just need a break. I just want to come up for air. I just want to have some time kind of away from whatever it is. Sarah and I, about two weeks ago, just had a week's holiday, which was fantastic. It was a great time away just to kind of relax and enjoy our family, enjoy one another, and not do much, but uh, sit there and enjoy and rest. But I don't know if you're anything like me. As soon as you get back, it feels like holidays are never enough. You're like, oh, I need another week or another two weeks. Or you're kind of there and you're trying to think as you're on holidays, this feeling is great. How do I make it last forever? <laughs> like, wouldn't that be great? That moment of having rest and just being free to not have to do all the things that we feel like we need to do all the time? Do you ever find yourself in that position, longing for rest? I'm sure those uh, amongst us who feel that most acutely are those who suffer all sorts of pain, chronic pain, mental illness, or those that are walking through the burden of relational or financial strain, and you just long for a break. Just give me a break, please, God. There's these things hemming in around us, providing that constant drain on our emotions. You get the feeling right. We long for rest. I want to put it to you today that no matter what you believe about Jesus, that the reason that we long for rest is because God made us that way. It's actually part of how God fabricated us. He made us longing for rest, and not just no work, but rest from the things that aren't right. He kind of stitched into the very fabric of humanity this desire for rest. But the question for us today is, is rest just a vain hope? Is it something that exists in us as, as, as a human race to say, yes, that's what I want, but we never actually get there. We never get to enjoy it fully. We never get enough. We're never satisfied. Is it just a pipe dream in the sky? Well, over the past few weeks, we've been tracking through the book of 2 Samuel with its background in 1 Samuel and following one of the most influential people in human history, a man that so much has been written about, a man by the name of David, who was the king of Israel. He had just moved up into Jerusalem and, and conquered that city and taken up residence there. He'd moved the Ark of the Covenant, the, the symbolic and actual presence of God was kind of amongst them right there. David was living with God under God's promises in his city, enjoying some or part of the promises that God had given way back to Abraham and his descendants. As we get to the first part of this chapter in, in, in verse 1, and narrator tells us, 
that the Lord had given David rest on every side from all his enemies. God had given David rest. Do you just go, oh, I do. Imagine it. This guy has been kind of shacked up in caves, running from Saul. He had uh, the nations around trying to conquer. Finally, God had given him rest. Imagine all the things that are the dr- a drain on your life currently. What is draining you right there now? I want you to think through that for a second. What are the things in my life that are draining me right now? You're like that guy at the front, he went, stop talking, stop it. Imagine that being completely dealt with. God giving us rest. Rest from our enemies. Rest from the pain we experience, from the impending darkness of mental illness, from sickness, from grief. Imagine having rest. I've noticed this pattern in myself. That whenever I feel that kind of relief, when I'm like, yes, I've had a break, my very next thought is, how do I keep it? (laughs) How do I stay in this point where where it can't get back in again? I want to stay like I'm feeling right now. And that's, I think, where David is at in this passage. Look again with me, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. When the king had settled into his palace and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, Look, I'm living in a cedar house while the ark of God sits inside a tent. Sorry, inside tent curtains. Now, at first reading, you're like, oh yeah, that's a good request. Here is David, he's built this amazing palace. Or everyone from all the nations around has helped him. God is amongst him in, in, in this ark. He is there. God is present with his people. He's got rest from the nations around him. And he kind of sits back and goes, look at me in my mansion. There's something going on wrong here. I'm in a mansion and I've built this little tent out the front of my front yard with, with kind of the ark of the covenant in it. It's kind of like this little pop-up warehouse thing. And here, here, here am I in this huge house. Now, traditionally, uh, Israel had housed the Ark of the Covenant in a tent, but it wasn't just any old tent. The tent that God gave the directions to build for this Ark of the Covenant as it was transported um, throughout out of Egypt and through Mount Sinai and through all their travels was the fanciest tent you could ever imagine. Now, I don't know what sort of tent you have. I don't know what a fancy tent looks like to you, but let, let me just have a look at some of the description of this tent. Exodus 26, verse 36. Exodus 26, verse 36. For the entrance to the tent, you are to make a screen embroidered with blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely spun linen. Make five posts of acacia wood for the screen and overlay them with gold. Their hooks are to be gold. You are to cast five bronze bases for them. Now, honestly, have you ever met someone with a tent that has gold tent posts? Like gold, not just painted gold, they are gold. You know the little ringlets that you kind of knock into the ground that hold the tent posts up? They're gold too. They're not those elastic things that keep breaking and you're kind of, oh, I've got to get another one. They're gold. This is the flashiest tent you can imagine. This is something special because it was to house the most special person in the universe. David looked at his own house and went, that's pretty nice. And he looked at the kind of pop-up warehouse tent that he bought on sale for $2. This little thing that he's got there, he hadn't listened to what God had said. He hadn't built that one back up again. And he went, I think I want to build God a house. But I wonder, was David's zeal at this point to build God a better house? Was that what was driving him? Or is David here trying to secure God's rest forever? 
Remember the Ark of the Covenant, the whole reason David thought, yes, now's the time to bring it back up, was because previously he'd seen the blessing that it brought on the house that was owning it in chapter 6. And so he's like, let's bring this, or chapter 5 and 6, let's bring the Ark up into here. Now we can see that the Ark can bring blessing to us. God brought blessing to his people and David was under no illusion that he was bringing the blessing. It was God that was doing it at that point. But nowhere ever had God asked anyone to build him a permanent house. The tent was just fine. But David, in his attempt to build God a house, was either trying to secure God's presence with him or trying to do something for God that was over and above what God had asked of him, or both. You can imagine why you want to build a solid house. I don't want this tent thing. I don't want you moving around, no camping. You need to build your house here, right? Are you ever tempted to try and secure God's blessing? or God's presence by bargaining with him, doing something special for him. Or maybe uh, some people are kind of, I want to experience the presence of God. And, and we do that by singing in a certain way, a certain type of Christian music that would usher in God's presence. And we're like, yes, if I sing in this way and have this music that's like this, then we can experience the presence of God. And that way he'll come in and fill the house. Nowhere does God promise to do that. Nowhere does he speak about doing that in the New Testament. Some of us, uh, we try to secure God's blessings in other ways. We try and think through, you know, what can I do for God so that he will bless me? Have you ever been there? You know, if, if you just let me pass this exam, God, then I'll come to church every week. Every week, I'll keep coming to church. But if you just let me pass this exam... We were like, you know, that would please God and make him happy. Or if you would give me the spouse that I'm after, if you would provide me with a spouse, I promise I'll never let my purity slip again. I will stay pure right now until all eternity. Well, how about, God, if, if, if I do great things for you, if I worship you with all of my life, if I tell three or four of my friends about Jesus, then will you just make my life a little bit easier? Would you just bless me? If, if I can do these things to you, if I can give you what you need, will you do something for me? Have you ever thought that? I have. Have you ever tried to secure God's blessing by giving him something you think he needs? Try to impress God, to do something for him. Here's the thing. When we do that, it totally misses who we are dealing with and what he owns. It totally misses the one that we're trying to impress. Listen to what God thinks of David's plan to build God a house. 2 Samuel 7 verse 5. Go tell my servant David and say, this is what the Lord says. Are you to build a house for me to live in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I have not lived in a house Instead, I've been moving around with a tent as my dwelling. In all of my journeys with all the Israelites, have I ever asked anyone among the tribes of Israel who I'm commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? See, David had missed something here about the nature of his relationship with God. It was all about what God had done for him, not what he could do for God. His relationship was all about what God had done. What God had done. Look at verse 8. This is what the Lord of hosts says. I took you from the pasture, 
from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I, 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 I. What have you ever done for me? Nothing. I have done everything for you. See, this is the point that Christianity is very, very different from every other religion in the world. Different worldviews and religions that exist in our world, even secularism and atheism, all of them say that the blessings that we receive, the good that we, we get back to ourselves is determined by what I do. So Buddhism says there's, there's an eightfold pathway to reach nirvana, eightfold ways that we need to reach this special state of enlightenment. Uh, Hinduism says uh, karma. Karma says that you do good things now, then good will come back to you. If you don't do good things now, then it won't. Your blessing, your future, your hope is dependent on what you do now. Islam. Islam says on the final day, Allah will come and weigh your deeds. And he will see what you have done that is good and what you have done that is bad. And if the good outweigh the bad, if you get to 51%, you're in. Every other religion, secularism, atheism, they all say you're you're a master of your own destiny. You need to achieve, you need to strive, you need to do, you need to do. It's what our world is saying, but not Christianity. Not Christianity. The God of the Bible says, there is nothing you can do for me. And there is nothing you can do to earn your blessing. It all comes from me, despite who you are and what you do. You can't be good enough. You can't be generous enough to earn my favor. You can't be sincere enough. You can't be kind enough. You can't be smart enough. You can't be wise enough to earn my blessing. Blessing is something that I give. I am the the holder of everything. I bless. I determine. I give to you. You don't do anything for me. Everything that happened so far in the story of Israel had had nothing to do with them. Think about it for a moment. Everything God had done throughout history up until this point had nothing to do with the strength or the stature of those God used. So so think for a minute. The biggest promise of of kind of the Old Testament is the promise to, to Abraham that he would be a great nation. That through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. He would, he would turn into a nation, have many, many children. His descendants would be as numerous as the stars. Now, if you were looking for a person to give that promise to, you or I, I would go and choose the person that already had the most number of kids. If your nations are going to be as, kind of, as, as numerous, if your sorry, children are going to be as numerous as the stars, you want someone who's young and, and fertile. Who does God choose? The oldest guy who's got no kids. He's sterile. Why does God choose to give a sterile old man who's got no hope of having a family to bring this promise on? Why does he choose him? Because it's blatantly obvious it's got nothing to do with him and everything to do with the God who blesses him. It's all about God. What nation did God choose to bring blessing to the whole world through? Israel. What was special about Israel? What was so great about them that God said, yes, this is the nation. Through this nation, I will bring blessing to the world. Was it their strength, their military power? Was it the, the way the other nations were, were feared of them? When he originally said that, there wasn't even a nation called Israel. It came through the descendant of Abraham. And then when God chose them to be his people, he chose them when they were in slavery in Egypt. For 400 years, the Egyptians had been punishing them. That's some nation, right? They're in slavery. They're cowering in the corner, crying out, help us, save us. And you're saying that that nation is going to be the nation that blessing is going to come through to the whole earth? Why did God choose Israel? 
So he could show blatantly to all of us, it has got nothing to do with them. The miracle is that I did it. I am God. You see that story repeated throughout history over and over and over again. David, who did God choose to be the king of his people, the first king? Not the king like the other nations, but the king who God chose. He chose the boy who couldn't even lead the sheep, but the sheep were leading him. He was following the sheep around. Did you get that reference? And he made him into the leader of this nation through whom all blessings would come. God chooses insignificant and unimpressive people to show us how impressive and significant and good he is and to remove from us any idea that we think we are in control of the blessings that we get. It's not about us, nor about what we do. We can't be good enough for him. We can't secure his blessing. It's all about God. You will not build me a house, David. Do you know who you're talking to? (laughs) You're not going to say, oh, yes, here's a great house for for you, God, that you're happy with. Look how amazing that is, David. Yes, I wish I had a house to live in that that you built for me because, you know, I own the universe. I spoke and light came into being. I created the earth with just words. You cannot earn or secure or bargain your way into blessing with the one who owns everything. You just can't. But this God is the God of blessing. He is the God whose heart is not to say, yes, serve me like some evil dictator, but who longs to love those he made, who longs to care for them and bless them. And so he says, you will not build me a house, but I will do something for you. Listen to what God will do. Have a listen with me. 2 Samuel 7 verse 9. I will make a name for you like that of the greatest in the land. I will establish a place for my people, Israel, and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not afflict them, as they have done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people, Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. You don't build me a house. I will build you a house. I will bless you. What an amazing God this is. So different from the way we think. He's not about absorbing and and being about me, me, me. He's about, I want to bless you according to my plans and my purposes so people might see I am the best ruler of the universe. There's a great play on words words here. Uh, Most often when there's a play on words throughout um, language that's been translated, we miss it. But here, the English actually carries through the the play on words. Um, Here, we, we see him saying, David wants to build a house for God, a building, right? The word house can mean building. Uh, but that same English word house can also mean like a, a family line. So if you take the queen, she lives in Sandringham House. That's the house that she lives in. I've never been there. Some of you might have. I imagine it's pretty fancy. The queen lives in it. That's her house. But she belongs to the house of Windsor. That's her family dynasty. That is her, her, her line. What is going on here? David wants to build God a house, a building. God says, I'm going to build you a dynasty, a family line that will never end. I'm going to build for you a kingdom, a line. You, this house is pitiful. I'm talking about forever. And all nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Have a listen. Verse 12. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. I will build a house for my name and will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
I'll be a father to him and he'll be a son to me. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with the human rod and with blows from others. But my faithful love will never leave him as I removed it from Saul. I removed him from your way. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever. And your throne will be established forever. Here you see the tremendous character of this God. David's dead set on securing blessing, trying to do something for him, which is actually offensive to God. But God returns that with saying, look at what I will do for you. (laughs) I will give you the greatest blessing imaginable. I'll fulfill my promises. This is the God who gives great blessing, not because of what we've done, but in spite of what we've done, in spite of our failings. There is none like him. There is no other worldview or religion like this. Christianity is just not one among many. It is so different. As this nation looks for its king, God is saying, David actually is not going to be it. He's a good one, but there'll be another. A son of David. One who will rule forever. That God will establish his kingdom forever. And this king will bring true rest. The rest David is looking for, trying to secure by the wrong means. The rest that he's trying to have, rest from their enemies. Rest in a physical place, rest from the effects of evil. We need to understand the importance of this promise. This passage, if you've got your Bible there, highlight this passage. The rest of the Bible hinges on this passage, 2 Samuel 7. It's key for everything that happens from this point forward. All the promises of God from this point forward are all tied to someone from the line in the family of David. All of them because of this. At that point, we stand back and we look at what the Bible's saying and we realize the Bible is not just a book about morality and ethics. So many people come along and think Christianity is about saying, oh, how do I live? What do I do? Um, how do I live in a way that pleases God? How do I live in a way that it's like the Christian way of living? No, the Bible is God's overarching plan for all of humanity. You see the way he's worked grounded in history, making promises, bringing them to fulfillment, bringing them towards a certain point. And now we've seen with clarity that that point is around the son of David, whoever that will be. He will be the king that will rule forever. As we move through the Bible, we start to see the expectation of this son of David. We start to see promises that would come. In fact, it's right there back at the beginning. In Genesis, Adam and Eve reject God. But then in Genesis 3, God has this little hint of a promise. He says to to Eve that your child, your descendant, will crush the serpent's head and the serpent will strike his heel. There is one coming who will get rid of sin and evil. Right at the beginning, who is this one? And we move through to Genesis 12. Oh, it's going to be a descendant of Abraham that God will bless the earth through and it will happen through the the land and the nation and the blessing. We get to Exodus 19 and there's Abraham's family and they're, they're there on Mount Sinai and God speaks and says, since I've saved you out of slavery to Egypt and brought you out as my people, since I've done this, this is how you are to live if you obey me. He says, this is how you are to live as my people. God is bringing his purposes to happen. But they didn't. They didn't follow God. They didn't treat him as they should have. And so you see throughout the judges, throughout um, 1 and 2 Samuel and the kings and chronicles, all the way through, Israel just kept rejecting God. But God never rejected them. As Ezekiel spoke in chapter 36, he said that Israel, God's people, needed new hearts. They needed a king that would lead them with new hearts, that would change their hearts from the hearts of stone to hearts breathed out by God that longed to live God's way. 
And all of that would come through a son of David. Listen to Isaiah talking about the expectations of this son of David. And you'll hear it ringing through. Isaiah 9 verse 6. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. This promise controls everything that happens the way forward. The rest we all desire and that we're longing for, the justice finally delivered, the the, the break from evil and sickness and suffering and sin are all coming through this son of David who would establish justice and righteousness, right living, people who would finally live the way that is right and a kingdom that would not end. We flip forward through to the New Testament and then the doctor Luke begins very early recording what is said to Mary about a son that will be born. Listen to this, Luke 1.31. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the lord god will give him the throne of his father david he will reign over the house of jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end with absolute clarity and 100 percent certainty the writers of the new testament all say jesus is that promised son of david he is the one who has come to establish peace and rest and justice to give us new hearts and to bring in a kingdom that will never perish, spoil or fade. What an amazing person he is. So many of us, as we come and we look at the claims of Jesus, we think, yeah, he's a good teacher. He's got good things to say to us, good morals to learn from him. Or he, he maybe was a miracle worker. He did some miracles. But those things all really are just pointers, signs, symbols to who he really was, that his true identity is that he is the son of David. Matthew starts with the genealogy of Jesus. And it goes from Abraham to David to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of this. He is the son of David who will rule forever. Let me say it even more strongly. He is what the whole of human history has been ordered to point forward to and has been longing for forever and finds its fulfillment in. This is the, Jesus is what everything is about. This is what God has been doing since before he made the world. Before humans existed, his plan was to create a people who he knew would rebel, who he knew would have to pay at great costs. That Jesus knew as, he, as all things were created for him and through him and by him, that he would come in the person of, of, of Jesus of Nazareth and die on a cross and face the punishment for us and be raised as that king who will rule forever. This has been God's plan. If you haven't seen that before, I want to highlight two great books on our bookstore. Uh, um, God's Big Picture and According to Plan. This will change, if if you've not seen the one storyline throughout the whole Bible around these promises, this will help you to see it, to look back through the scriptures and be like, far out, this is crystal clear. You get to Acts and it's exactly what they say. This this Jesus was descendant of David. You're like, why why do I care who his great, 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 great grandfather was? Because he is this promised king. The New Testament writers, those that saw and lived with Jesus, were absolutely certain. Jesus is this promised king. Forgiveness and rest can be ours. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it meant that the son of David is on his throne. Jesus is ruling. His kingdom has come. 
There's an overlap between the, the two ages where sin is still around. Our hearts have not yet been made totally right. Jesus has not yet come back and put an end to those things of evil and injustice. But that is coming. And you see the inbreaking throughout all of the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, of the kingdom of God. What does that mean? It means we no longer need to worry about whether we will get rest. We no longer need to worry about how God will treat us. For if we trust in Jesus, our sins have been dealt with. If he is this king and he is the ruler, that God will be faithful to his promises. We don't have to worry about what our future will look like because it is secure. 100%. We don't need to try and secure God's blessings for us. It's been done on the cross. God the Son has come and died in our place. He is the, the promised son of David. It got me thinking, why do we worry? Why, why do I worry about things? You know, the reason that we worry is that we think we know the way the world should go. We think we, we've got a good idea of how we should act and what we should do in the world that we live in. We don't trust God to bring about his plans and purposes in the best way possible for his glory and for my good. And so I've got, I've got to do something here. I've got to make it work. I've got to secure God's blessing. I've got, to, I've got to do these things and I worry about it. But the God of the Bible, the God of history, always keeps his promises. Always. He's been faithful time and time and time again. And now he is the king on the throne ruling the world. So we look at events and we go, why would this go on? And we start worrying, is God really in control? Just remember, Jesus conquered death at the cross. He rose again and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and things will be put right. Jesus is on the throne. And I'm not. I don't need to be. I don't need to control my life. I don't need to control these things or try and secure God's blessing. He's already done it for me. The best God ever, the one who loves me, is on his throne. Martin Luther has this fantastic quote. He says, you cannot worry and let God be king. You cannot worry and let God be king. If he is king and Jesus is on the throne, yes, hardship will come. But our future is secure. What an amazing gift that is that has got nothing to do with us. We haven't achieved it. We haven't haven't been charming enough or good enough or helpful enough or charitable enough to get that for God. He has just blessed us because that is his character and nature. He has offered that to us. We just accept it. If we would just say, yeah, he is the king. I'm in, I'm with him. The question for us then is, how do we respond? What will we do we always want to do stuff don't we always you know someone's sick what can i do for you we always want to see how we can help and it's a good thing to help others out but we always want to try and do things for people but listen to the way that david responds to what god has done for him he's heard god loud and clear today number one he confesses that he doesn't deserve god's blessing look at verse 18 who am i lord god and what is my house that you've brought me thus far Who do I think I am? Pretending I can bless God. Pretending I can do something for God. What what is wrong with me? Oh, that you have blessed me, God. I don't deserve to be part of your kingdom forever. I don't deserve any of this. How do we respond to the God who has offered us life forever? By confessing that we don't deserve it. 
Secondly, he speaks of the character of God. He says that it's because of his, God's word and according to his will. Um, it's not on the screen, but verse 21 and 22. It says, you've revealed all these things to your servant. This is why you are great, Lord God. There is no one like you and there is no God beside you. As all we have heard confirms, he says, God, you are God and there is no one like you. I now see you clearly. <laughs> I can't give you anything. You made everything. You keep your promises. <laughs> you are amazing. He praises God. And then he asks God, even though he's been faithful, to continue to be faithful to his promises. Not for David's sake, though, but for the glory and fame of God. Look at verse 25. Now, Lord, fulfill the promise forever that you have made to your servant and his house. Do as your promise, not so that he can gain it for himself. See this? So that your name will be exalted forever. When it is said, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies is God over Israel. David at this point has realized life is not about him. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about us having secured blessings forever. It's about God. What an amazing person he is. And the fact that he has caught us up into it and allows us to share in the future that he has offered. We all long for rest. We long for a break from evil, from sickness, from so many things. What Jesus is saying is that rest will come. You can bet your life on it. I've died on the cross. I've paid for your sins because of nothing you have done, but because I'm God and I love you. True rest will come when this king returns to earth and finally puts sin and darkness and death and suffering to death itself. And the rest we've all been longing for will be not only secured, but given to those who trust in this son. Every time you're tired, don't see it as, as, as necessarily a negative. Every time life hurts, every time people say things that are hurtful and you're like, oh, I just want to get away from this. Every time pain comes from sickness, or life's circumstances deal us a hard blow and you say, oh, I just want to break. I just want to take a breath. I just want to have a holiday. I just need a rest. Recognize that desire is right and true. And that it is coming to you if you trust in Jesus. Certainly. Because he is king. He is on his throne. That desire for rest allows us to turn what can be pain into the certain expectation of joy god will fulfill his promises he always has and he always will jesus has died on the cross it's done it's finished he's offered his life so when you stop pretending to be on the throne stop worrying yes life will be hard but god's plan for us is good i want you rest in the amazing grace of our god that we have a hope that will last forever if we trust in him what an amazing God he is. Let's pray and ask him to be the focus of our lives as we long for that rest. Father, we are in awe of you. We're in awe of the way that you treat us, even though we don't deserve it. We confess that so often we try to secure our blessing by bargaining with you 
by all sorts of different ways. And Lord, we don't recognize who you are. We are amazed that you would show us your love when we don't deserve it. And we are so, so thankful that Jesus has come and he has laid down his life and he's now risen as the king. We pray you would give each of us in this room a certain hope, a dependence, a trust, knowing that Jesus has died in our place, that we might live for you, that we might trust you, that we might enjoy that grace, that free gift of life forever with Jesus as our king. We pray, Lord, that you would fix our eyes on your son. You'd captivate us. And Lord, we also pray you would bring your kingdom. We long for the day when death is defeated finally, when sickness and pain and evil and our own brokenness and wretchedness are dealt with finally. And we don't have to put up with that any longer. We long for rest. And so we pray desperately, your kingdom come. Would people trust in you now and would you bring the day that Jesus comes back? Lord, we long for that. And while we wait, we serve you as our King and our Saviour. Amen.